Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark to get a clear picture of the real Jesus, the raw Jesus, the Jesus who is better than the assumptions that we make about him, sort of like a Jesus that you can't fit inside of a box. And so in Mark chapter one, we saw that Jesus started his ministry. He started his ministry by proclaiming a singular message. He summarized it in one sentence. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Jesus' message that he came to proclaim. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And so that begs the question for us, like, what is the kingdom of God, right? Like, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring? What is the kingdom of God that is now near, that is now at hand? And we don't really have any explanation for uh, the answer to that question in the first two chapters. But, uh, and the reason is because the Gospel of Mark is actually less about abstract teachings and is more sort of like a quick by, like play-by-play of, of Jesus' ministry. If you ever read the Gospel of Mark like in, in, a, in a sweeping narrative, you'll notice it's like action-packed. It's jam-packed with action, almost like a bank heist movie, right? Like you've got one scene that leads into the next, that leads into the next. And the way Mark writes his Gospel, he's got Jesus moving from one place to the next to the next. It's like super fast-paced. And in it, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows us, in the first few chapters, he shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. He doesn't explain it at first. He first shows us what it looks like by calling people to follow him, by healing people from demonic oppression, by touching the lepers and the social outcasts that everyone else avoided, by forgiving sin, by sitting hospitably with sinners and outsiders. 
But now, when we turn the corner into chapter 4, that's when Jesus almost slows down to unpack and to describe what the kingdom of God is. It's almost like he's saying, all right, like you, you've heard me say the kingdom of God is here, and I've shown you what it means to live in light of the kingdom of God, but now let me tell you what I mean by that. And then he starts describing the kingdom of God using parables, these real-life metaphors that sort of paint a picture of what God's kingdom looks like here on earth as it is in heaven. And here we see that Jesus tells a parable in chapter 4 about a seed. He tells a story about a sower, about a tree, and about a lamp. Uh, And... You might make us, that might make us think as we're reading this, all these parables that he's stringing together. Like, why didn't Jesus just like summarize the kingdom of God in a single sentence, right? Why didn't he just give it to us like one nugget, one, just wrap the whole thing up in a nice package in a nutshell. Why didn't he just give us one nugget to define the whole kingdom of God? Or even just, if he wanted to stick with parables, why didn't he just give us just, just one parable? Why does he use multiple parables and string them together, multiple metaphors? Uh, Flannery O'Connor, the great novelist and essay writer, she was once asked to put the meaning of one of her stories uh, in a single sentence, to whittle it down into a nutshell. And, And I love how she responded. She said, you know, if I could put the story in a single sentence, then I wouldn't have had to write the whole story, right? If I wanted, if I could have done that, then I would have, wouldn't have written a whole story, And what she's not saying is she's not saying that it's impossible to summarize the plot of her story. She's actually making a point. She's making a brilliant point. She's saying, you know, you'll miss the beauty of the story if you try and whittle it down too much. You'll miss the nuances, the tensions, the multifaceted different angles of each character and subplot that make the story what it is. She's like, you're going to miss all that if you try and squish it down to like bite size. The fun size, right? She's saying you can't summarize the biggest things in life into bite-sized nuggets. If you do, then you'll miss the full meaning of it. You won't get the full impact, the full experience of it. And so for that reason, Jesus offers a string of parables, multiple parables to describe to his listeners and to describe to us what his kingdom is, what his kingdom is like. And so we're going to look at three of those parables this morning, uh, and we're going to derive three points from them. First, we're going to look at the the revealing of the kingdom that Jesus brings. Secondly, we're going to look at the subversive nature of the kingdom. And lastly, we're going to look at the expanding of the kingdom. So first, the revealing of the kingdom. Let's tackle that one. Read verse 21 with me. It says, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, is a lamp brought in to be, to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, here's here's what I don't want you to miss in this point. It's what, like, and it's what Jesus didn't want his disciples to miss in this point either. It's that God is not trying to hide from us, Right? God is not trying to hide from us. He wants his news out there. He wants his news to shine. He wants his glory out there. He's not trying to hide from us. 
He's not trying to hide himself. God the Father is pursuing you through God the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, as a Christian, like I get asked a lot sometimes by my, my skeptic friends. Like they, they say, you know, if God is so loving, if the Christian God is so loving, then why does he seem so distant to me? Why do bad things happen? Why does he allow those things? Why doesn't God show up? And man, if that's, if that's you this morning, if those are the kind of questions that, that you're asking that you've, you've sort of wrestled with, if those are good questions to ask, those are good questions to press into. But the answer I want you to see in this text is that God didn't hide himself. He did do something. He did do something. He came to us in the midst of our brokenness. He came to fix all that was wrong. That's kind of the whole point, right? The whole point of Christianity, the whole reason we call it good news is because when we look around at the world, we recognize that there's something that's gone wrong. When we look inside of us, we realize there's something that has gone wrong. And God does not hide himself from that mess. He steps in it. He came to us in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That's the good news. And that's the good news Jesus came to bring when he said, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Like, have you ever just cried out to God in desperation? Have you ever prayed the prayer, God, just just help me? Where are you? Just help me. If you take that longing, if you take that prayer, and you make it sort of the collective lament of an entire nation for generation after generation after the generation, that's the prayer, the collective prayer, the national prayer that the Jews were crying out for and longing for at the turn of the first century when Jesus walked the earth. All the suffering that they endured all the, impression, the oppression that enslaved them, they cried out that God would once and for all just, just end it. That he would make all things new. That God would both heal our broken world and mend our broken souls. That he would free their nation from oppression at the hands of Rome. And, and, and man, we, we've, like, we've all had this thought, right, where, where of that something has to be done about the things that enslave us. That something has to be done about the things that oppress us, like our pet sins, our flirtatious encounters and temptations, the misogyny and the racism that we see in our culture. The kingdom of God was coming to liberate, to renew. And that is what the kingdom of God meant to Jesus' listeners. That's what the kingdom of God meant to his disciples. It's what they longed for. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, and when he says, you know, like it's, it's like a light that you don't want to hide or put under a basket or put under a bed. You want to put it out on a stand. Like, man, that's good news to his listeners. That's good news to them. Jesus says, look, that's who I am. I'm the king you've been waiting for. He says, that is the message that I bring. Freedom for the captives. That's what the kingdom of God is. And so in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is revealed and it's exposed. That's why in verse 21, he says, read it with me. It says, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. Now, if you have a lamp that's meant to light up a dark room, 
the one place you're not going to put that lamp is under a basket, right? The one place you're not going to put it is under a bed. If you want the light from the lamp to invade the darkness in the room, then you're going to put it up on a stand in the middle of the room where everyone can see it. And read on to verse 22 with me. He says, Jesus continues, he says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? He's saying, look, as, like, as we've been looking at the gospel of Mark, Jesus is using these metaphors, these stories, these parables in his teaching. And only those who are really, truly drawn to him, they're the ones who, you know, the ones who take time to digest, who take time to press in and reflect. Only those people are the ones who become his true followers. And because of that, we might get the impression that Jesus is almost trying to hide the meaning of the kingdom of God. Like Christianity is some secret society, like the Illuminati, right? Like it's some secret society where insiders get the right, who with the right information that they're on the in and everyone else is on the margins. They get pushed out. But here in verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, no, it's not like that. He says, in the same way that you don't hide a lamp, the kingdom of God doesn't stay hidden either. It's meant to shine. It's meant to be out there. Jesus is saying, that's why I came. I came not to just embody it, but to proclaim it. I'm here to show you what it is. I I, I want you to see something here. Jesus is saying, I, he's saying basically, I am that lamp. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp. In verse 21, he says, is a light brought in to be put under a basket. But the Greek word there, the Greek word for brought in is, is, is this word which literally means like to come in, to bring yourself in. All right. So picture this. He's saying, does a lamp bring itself in? So he's saying like, does a lamp come inside, bring itself in to be put under the bed? I mean, it's kind of an awkward picture, right? Like lamps don't stroll into a room. They don't jump into the room unless you're watching like the opening sequence of a Pixar film, right? You don't see lamps like walking and strolling into the room. And so when Jesus asks, does the lamp come into the room? Does the lamp itself come inside the room to hide? His listeners will be connecting the dots with the language that he's using. They'd be connecting the dots and they would know that Jesus is personifying the lamp. That the lamp is a picture of the one speaking, of the one proclaiming, of the one who came to bring the light of the kingdom. The lamp is Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm not coming to hide God, but to reveal him to the whole world. Now is the time that you've all been waiting for. No longer will you walk in darkness. No longer will you long for light. I've come to bring it. I've come to proclaim it. Man, the earth longs for redemption. The earth longs for redemption. Today, the earth longs for a savior. It longs for a glimpse of the divine. Even the most, even the most like hardened skeptic has to admit that something's gone wrong with our world and that we long for something more. That's why the church father, Augustine, said, our hearts are restless, Lord, until we find our rest in you. It's on the backdrop of that longing that God breaks into human history and puts the glory of his life on display in Jesus Christ. 
And so what about you? What about us? What about you? Where are you at today with this? Are you living with the assumption that, that God is, is hiding from you? That he's hidden himself from you? Or are you asking God in humility to open your eyes to see the truth and beauty of his salvation in Jesus Christ? Are you suppressing the good news of the kingdom instead of allowing the light of Jesus to sit at the highest point in the room of your heart? You see, when we put his glory and his fame above everything else in life, then only then can he truly illuminate our rooms. Only then, when we put him there, can he illuminate our lives and the deepest and scariest places of our souls. Only when we put him on that stand. You see, that's why Jesus came. He came to reveal the kingdom of God. And so gaze at him. Let that light shine. Our second point. He tells a parable about the subversive nature of the kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? What do we mean by subversive nature? It means that there's an, sort of like an upside-downness to the kingdom. There's an unexpectedness to the kingdom that sort of defies the assumptions that we make about Jesus and how he works in the world. That's what we mean by subversiveness. Uh, just yesterday... I was walking with my family and just down the street from here, and I saw this, this beautiful hot sight. It just made my heart swell. Uh, apparently, there's a new ramen restaurant coming to Rancho Santa Margarita. Amen. Hallelujah. Prayers have been answered, right? <laughs> now I don't have to drive all the way up to Irvine to get good Japanese ramen, right? The sign was up on top of the old pokey restaurant over by like Wood Ranch, and it says, you know, under new management. Uh, and then it, this, this note about how, you know, like we're not doing pokey anymore. We're moving on to ramen now. And, and yeah, there you go. It's the excitement in the room. You guys are awake now. Um, <clears throat> And that's because, look, when you're under new management, when you've got new management, things can change, right? When you're under new management, things can change. There's a new way of doing things. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, look, there's a subversiveness to, a, to, to the kingdom. There's an upside-downness of it. There's a way to the kingdom that defies the assumptions that we make about how it should work. It works differently than what we're used to, than what we're accustomed to. Look at verse 24. It says, Jesus said to them, uh, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Now, I know that sounds super convoluted and confusing, but when you press into that, what Jesus is saying in simple terms is he's saying the people who give the most are the ones who have the most. Those who give the most are the ones who gain the most. The way to getting whole is by giving yourself for others. And then move on to verse 25 with me. He kind of elaborates on this when he says, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. So in other words, Jesus is saying those who give more We'll have more to give. Now, where do we see this? We really see this everywhere in the kingdom. We see this everywhere. Like one example is when you're sharing your faith. When you're sharing the faith, like the more, have you noticed that the more that you share your faith in Jesus with others, 
The more that you're sharing it, the more you're chewing on it, the more you're preaching it to yourself, the more you wrestle with it in community, the more you share it with others, then the more you'll grow in your faith. The more you'll grow in your relationship with Christ. On the other hand, if you cower from sharing what you have with others, then the easier it is for it to diminish. It's also how human relationships work too. Like if you seek relationships just to have your own personal needs met and that's it, then you'll never feel relationally satisfied. You'll never feel like your needs are met. But if you seek first to serve others instead of having your own needs met first, then you're living in light of the kingdom of God and you'll, you'll have more emotional health. You see, the kingdom is so subversive in the most beautiful ways. It says the rich man who's quick to give is the one who is truly rich. The gospel of the kingdom tells us that the way up is to go down. The way to be first is to be last. The way to influence and to have power is to serve in humility. The way to be truly rich is to, to give your resources to others. The way to be free is to go to God's word and say, command me, direct my path. The way to find your life is to lose it in Christ. You see, the kingdom of God, it turns everything that we know about how the way the world works and it, it turns it on its head. It's the reverse of how the world looks at money and power and status and comfort. The world says, if you want to be happy, then figure out how to the best of your ability to live for who? Yourself. If you want to be happy, live for yourself. That's what the world tells us. But the scriptures show us that the way that we're wired, the way we were intended, the way of the kingdom is to live for the other, to live for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. And only when you give your life away in that sense will you truly find it. On the last page of C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity, he unpacks this principle of the kingdom's subversiveness and how we really gain our true self when we give ourselves away. Um, re read this quote with me. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says, Your real new self, which is Christ and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and then and only then will you find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. And nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. So look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And here's the point, and with him, everything else thrown in. You see, that's the language of the kingdom of God. That's the language of the kingdom. That's why some people miss it. 
because it's a language that's unexpected. It's a language that goes down to go up, to die in order to live. It's totally unexpected, and maybe we could even say it's totally unattractive. But it points us to Jesus. It points us to the submersiveness, the subversiveness of Jesus, the one that we truly need. Another area we see the subversive nature of God is in that it's not about what you do for him. It's not what you do for God. It's actually about what he does for you. You hear that? You see, the submersiveness in the kingdom is not is that it's not so much about what we do for God, but it's about what he does for us. And look, what we do is a big part of our Western identity, right? It's a big part of our, our Western identity. Like when you're meeting a bunch of new people at a party, like what's one of the first questions you get asked? What do you do, right? What's your name and what do you do? Jesus said, says that in him, your identity has actually less to do with what you do, even what you do for him, and it has more to do with who you are, all right? Western modernity tells us that what matters most are the results that we produce, but Jesus tells us that what matters most is who we are becoming in relation to him, and then everything else flows out of that, right? The work we do then flows out of that. At the center of the kingdom, is not our kingdom work. At the center of the kingdom is a king. At the center of, a ki- of the kingdom is a king. And this king, King Jesus, is always on the move. And he's always at work. He's the one who's always growing his kingdom. We think that God's kingdom is dependent on what we do for him. And then we find our identity in that. Right? And look, this doesn't mean that we don't work hard. This doesn't mean that we don't plan and that we don't pray and that we don't collaborate. It just means that at the end of the day, God is the one who grows his kingdom. And the reason we need to get that is because if it's the other way around, then we get so wrapped up in our identity in our performance. We get so wrapped up in what we do rather than in celebrating what Christ has done. You see, God invites us to participate. He surely invites us to participate in kingdom work, but God is going to grow his kingdom with or without you. And look, I don't like that because I like to think that I'm important. I like to think that I'm awesome, that my work matters. But Jesus drives the point that, yes, our work matters, but it's only because he makes it matter. He's the one working. He says, even when you sleep at night, God is the one at work. Read verse 26 with me. It says, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is as as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The big idea here is that God is the one who grows the harvest. He's the one accomplishing the work in and through us. And you have to trust that God is bringing his kingdom and expanding it to the ends of the earth. That's good news for us. That's good news because it reminds us that God is working. He's this light that everyone needs to see on the lampstand. God is doing the work of making it shine, of making the harvest, bringing it about. 
You see, ultimately, this parable is about trusting that God is sovereignly at work all around us. We want to see him at work in our own timing, don't we? We want to see, man, if I give this tract to this person, if I share the gospel with this neighbor, like, boom, I want to see that happen, right? We want the kingdom to work on our own timing. But it never works that way. God builds our faith. He asks us to trust that he is sovereignly at work. Earlier this year, uh, my sister and brother-in-law, they gave us this orange tree and planted it in our backyard. And it's a young, it's a young tree, and it wasn't the season to be sprouting oranges yet, and so it was, it was bare, right? It was bare. It was an orange tree, but without any oranges. And I took our three-year-old daughter over there to water it one day and explained, you know, that this tree is an orange tree, and it needs water. And it needs sunlight and, and, you know, from the sun, and, and it's going to grow, and it's tall, and it's going to bring fruit, and that's why we're watering it. And a few days later, she walked back there all excited, and she looked at the tree, and she looked at me, and she says, Dad, someone took all our oranges. <laughs> She's like, someone took all our oranges. She's like, why are the oranges not there? In her mind, we did what I said we should do. We watered it. The light came and shined down. And so there should be oranges there tomorrow, right? Look, and maybe that's how we are when it comes to the kingdom of God. Maybe that's how we are. We want the good news of the kingdom to be a singular big event in our lives. This turnkey moment where salvation breaks in, where you become a next level theology nerd overnight and people you invited all come to church and the church is just exploding, right? When you're evangelizing to people, you just want people to, you just want it to happen right away. And our tendency in the church is to get lost in that, to be so results driven, and again, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with praying and with planning and metrics and keeping track and, and all these things that, that we do in churches. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is a problem when you think that you can manipulate the results of the kingdom. Because then we get proud when it goes well, rather than praising God. Our job is to plant the seed, to nurture it. God's job is to make it grow. What it says about the farmer in verse 27 should be super humbling for us. He says in verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth just seems to magically produce by itself. It's supernatural. One of the most natural things on our planet just happens in such a seemingly supernatural way. And it's humbling for us. It should be humbling for us. It reminds me of that, that hymn that we sing, All Glory Be to Christ, when we sing, Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. And man, that, that informs the way that that I pray for the work that we're doing in planning this church. God, unless you raise the house, our work is in vain. He's the one that reveals the kingdom. He's the one that nurtures and grows it. And this leads us into our last point, the expanding of the kingdom. Read verse 30 with me. It says, Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parables shall we use for it? 
It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, when Jesus' disciples heard the message of the kingdom of God, they made some assumptions about what he meant. They made some assumptions about what Jesus meant. They were convinced because of their tradition that God's enemies, when when the kingdom of God came, that God's enemies would be destroyed, that they would no longer be oppressed by Rome, and that the kingdom would come in some like geopolitical military event, and they'd be the only ones left. That's what they believed. And here Jesus says, no, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. The kingdom... Will, like, will, will, will the kingdom break through completely? Yes, it absolutely will. But he's telling them, as you grow as my people, the weeds are also going to grow with you. And as truth and righteousness multiplies, evil will oppose from the other side too. You see, the kingdom of God is living in faith in spite of all those things. The kingdom of God, we can say, is living in faith as if Jesus is the king. That's primarily what the kingdom of God means. It's living under his benevolent rule and reign. You want to live in the kingdom? You live as if Jesus is king. You see, they're thinking Jesus is going to call down a massive army, that he's going to be a, a, a different kind of king than the one he came as. They're thinking he's going to call down this massive army, but through this parable, he destroys their assumptions and he says, no, the kingdom of God is going to more like play out like a mustard seed. It's going to start microscopic. The disciples were not expecting that. They were troubled by that. They were troubled by the perceived smallness of what was going on. I mean, these crowds, first of all, Jesus came out of Nazareth, which there was a saying back then, like, does anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Like, they're, they're, they're following this guy around who come out, came out of Nazareth, and crowds are chasing after Jesus because of his miracles and his power and his teaching. But when that teaching got hard, when that teaching confronted them, the big crowd would all of a sudden fade away, and then there was this tiny remnant, this, band, this tiny band of followers left over. And so it would have been tempting for Jesus' disciples at the time to think, is this it? Like, is, is, is this it? Are these the kingdom citizens, just these people who were left over? Everyone else, the crowds left. Like there was this excitement of everybody coming around, seeing the miracles, hearing Jesus teach, packing out synagogues and houses in the streets, pouring out into the streets. But now there's just a small group of them left because all the, all, the, all the fun stuff has faded away and now Jesus is teaching hard things. And it would have been tempting for the disciples to say, like, is this, is this, is this it? Is this all that's, that's going on? And, and look, maybe, maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt that way. Like, if you, if you look around at the community that you live in, or if you read the articles online about what, what, what people are, are, are saying about Christians, or you watch the newsreels at night and, and you wonder, um, Man, you know, you hear about the secularization of, of Europe. 
you wonder, like, is the kingdom really expanding? Or is it just, is it just us, right? Is the kingdom really expanding? Now, Jesus is talking to this tiny group of followers on the other side of the earth 2,000 years ago. And he tells them, the seed of the gospel is going to go into the ground like a mustard seed. And he tells them, it's going to grow, it's going to grow, and it's going to grow until its branches outgrow every shrub sitting outside. This thing is going to get so massive that the birds of the air from all over will make their home in here, in this tree. And he says, that's what the kingdom is like. It's unexpected. It's slow. It's humble. It's the kind of thing that makes us go, man, we're not great, but God is great. And this should give us great encouragement. You know why? Because as we mentioned last week, here we are in Rancho Santa Margarita, 2,000 years later, reading from the Word of God, reading this parable that God has preserved for thousands of years, celebrating the work of Jesus, knowing that the kingdom of God is at hand, transformed lives sitting in these seats right now, singing songs about Jesus, learning about Jesus, celebrating the work in the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. If you were in that room when Jesus was speaking to these small remnant of followers, if there was any doubter or skeptic in that room, you would have been able to tell him, just wait. Just wait. I come from a whole nother continent and a whole nother generation. Where we, and we're meeting every single week on the Lord's Day in a public school to learn about the one that you're sitting with. To learn about this kingdom. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. Everywhere the seed of the gospel goes, it does its work. As the sower scatters seed, as the word of the gospel is preached, as the spirit transforms lives, as people mature and grow in the truth, living as disciples for the glory of God and for the good of their neighbors, then those branches start to stretch out. And disciples make disciples that make disciples. And then we plant churches that plant churches that plant churches for generations. And the glory of God will be covered, the scriptures say, with the knowledge, or the, the whole earth will be covered, the scriptures say, with the knowledge of the glory of God. We see it unfolding in history, right before our eyes. The glory of God is found not in our greatness, but in His greatness. The glory of the kingdom is not found in our greatness, but in his greatness and in our smallness. So unassuming, so unexpected, so subversive, but God says, this is how I do things. That's how the kingdom breaks in. It's so obscure. It goes underground to work until it sprouts, just like Jesus did himself. Jesus the smallest seed born from the smallest of nations in the most unadmirable of towns, not in a palace, but in a manger. 
He was the smallest of seeds, both socially and geopolitically, and even physically. There was no physical appeal to him. Isaiah 51 tells us that, that men turned their faces from him because of, of, their, of his sight. Yet this small seed, Jesus, would grow to teach. He would grow up from a little baby to grow to end up teaching in the synagogues, to be casting out demons, to be forgiving sinners as God, to eat with the outsiders, to the point that the religious elite got him killed. He caused that much of a ruckus. And through his death, we find life. Jesus died. He went into the ground. And when he sprouted up, when he rose from the grave, he came with it, the beginnings of an ever-growing harvest. And he continues to nurture the growth of his followers today. The kingdom is growing in the suburbs and in urban centers and in hard-to-reach places. And we just we just got back from Reno this week with our, our church planning network, and we got to meet with all these pastors and church planners that are, are, are planning churches in, in some of the craziest places, the most hard-to-reach places over-secularized Europe where, where faith and in, in, in Christianity is a thing of the past. Man, the mo- we heard the most amazing stories about how it's, it's grabbing root in the slums of Europe. You see, his kingdom is growing. And it's growing because Jesus is tending to its growth. He's good on his word. And in the same way that he sat with his disciples, that he unpacked these parables and that he explained them, and he wanted to make sure that he got them, through his spirit, he does the same to us today. And so we pour over the scriptures. We read about the good news of the kingdom. And by the spirit of God, we grow and we're transformed, and we make disciples, and we plant churches, and we'll continue to do that until God's glory covers the surface of the earth, and until Jesus returns. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.